A Dharma talk is uh, not like a lecture. It's uh, not simply to transmit some information, uh, to add to the already rich information archives that you have. Um, It's designed to move the retreat ahead, move it on. and from the point of view of each individual, it's an opportunity to practice mindfulness in terms of listening. Uh, and if you do that, it's an opportunity to, again, learn about yourself, self-knowing. Because you can see the art of listening comes from, as far as I can tell, in my own work with it, uh, from seeing how you don't listen. Uh, and when you start paying attention to the quality of your listening, you begin to see how a lot of energy is spent agreeing, disagreeing, comparing it to this teacher said that, and that one said this, and and just drifting off. If it's interesting, you're back. If it's not, you're out to lunch. Uh, So it's meant to be a practice. My practice is to what I'm doing. This is my yogi job. First off, a compliment to all of you. The staff has uh, a number of different staff people have come up to me and commented on how uh, wonderful you have all been at your yogi jobs. Uh, They have a a point of comparison because lots of retreats come and go here. So I guess old Dogen and the old Chinese cook got through to you. Earlier today, I channeled Dogen, (laughs) and he's very pleased. What I'd like to do is review some of the ground we covered, uh, because one of the points we're trying to make, I would say the central, one of the important points, is a new way of looking at practice. Now, this new way is not something that, that I invented. Matthew invented. It's been around since ancient times. It's just that it isn't emphasized. Uh, sometimes it has been, and it gets lost. And it's one where practice and life are the same thing. Practice is daily life. Daily life is practice. And it seems especially appropriate for our time. Maybe it always has been. All there is is daily life. If you, if any of you have lived in monasteries, or spiritual communities, you know that there's a life goes on. Um, a little bit of the history of all of this. First off, um, let's see if you hear the word history. Is your mind already out? To <laughs> <laughs> You're out the door, taking a cold shower. Um, the whole form of having a monastery with a head cook, and if you recall from the other evening. Uh, Dogen uh, praises the whole head cook, but he also does the same thing for the administrators. He goes through all the different offices of the monastery, calls them all children of the Buddha, and all of them are doing the work that's essential so that the people who are gathered together uh, have the best conditions possible to practice. But this didn't exist in India because 
the early stages of India because uh, it was more wandering. People would study with the Buddha and just wander and live outside, and the Buddha lived most of his life out in the forest. And so it wasn't, it came a little later, even in the Buddha's time, but it didn't get organized uh, until larger gatherings of people. And there it would be for the rainy season, so it would again be temporary where people would come together to practice for three months while it was so rainy in uh, India. To show you that the practice has gone through many changes and is continuing to right here in our time. Um, when it moved from India to China, because that's where this instruction went from China, the old cook was Chinese who gave uh, Dogen a spanking for underestimating the value of, of cooking. Um, the Chinese at first tried to do it the Indian way, but it's a different climate, different culture, um, and the Chinese people very earthy, and they couldn't stand the thought of these able-bodied men not doing any work, you know, just expecting to be taken care of all the time. And um, one interpretation is that the Zen sect survived at a time when the emperor of China uh, closed down, forced many monks to disrobe. The Chinese didn't, didn't like what was going on, but they spared the Zen people because they were more at home with them. They would farm, they would grow things, they would cook, they would clean. Um, <clears throat> and it started with a, uh, a Chinese monk named Pei Chang, who said, a day of no work is a day of no eating. That was his teaching, it's very famous. And you don't want to work, fine. You don't get to eat either. And when he was in his very old, close to death, he continued to go outside to work. And his students tried to hide his equipment from him. Because, he, you know, for goodness sake, you're an old man. Just take it easy. And he said, no, a day of no work is a day of no eating. And they hid his, uh, his tools. And so he refused to eat. <laughs> and he said, um, if I die... Uh, he didn't want to die when it was cold weather because it would be uh, very difficult for the, the ground to be dug up to bury him. So they gave him back his tools. He finished up and died. And uh, so then it, it went through refinement and refinement and refinement. Um, <clears throat> and the version that we're getting from Dogen is what he learned in one monastery in China. And he also, in this, I haven't given you the, the teaching, has a lot of detail in it that I've not gone into. Uh, he also ref refers to many monasteries in Japan where it very, was very sloppy and where the different positions were not respected. And so for him, it was uh, uh, quite a, a, a waking up call to find out that, um, this, that everything you do it can be dharma. And that's the real lesson. It's not finally about the cook, or it is about the cook, or our yogi job here, uh, but it's more than that because it's a way of life. And the key word to remember in Japanese, it's a shikan, which means just. Some of you know this. You hear it from shikantaza, it's a form of, of sitting meditation, in some ways similar to what we do here at a certain point in our practice. And it means just sitting. And it was transferred to this to just cooking. And what just means is that it means exclusively giving your wholehearted attention. So when you cook, just cook. Don't cook plus all kinds of other things. 
in short, don't have attention deficit disorder. Now, if you read enough of this Buddhist stuff, and I, you know, I have the bad karma of being steeped in it for almost 40 years. Um, when you hear about attention deficit disorder, my conclusion is the whole human race has attention deficit disorder. Uh, and maybe that's from living in Cambridge, where anything, if anyone does anything wrong, oh, that's because I have attention deficit disorder. <laughs> but you just ran over three people, killed them, uh, shot the cop policeman, and then you try to escape. Well, it's because of attention deficit disorder. <laughs> so, uh, Dogen and this Chinese, this is what we're up against. This is from the Wall Street Journal. See, I see Dharma everywhere. Even the worst movies have Dharma in it, believe it or not. Because if you, all films and novels, they're showing you how to suffer, or they wouldn't be interesting. <laughs> you know, it's, in other words, this is a matter, if you want to learn how to suffer, not that we need any training, but Otherwise, with these detective stories and, you know, all of it, love with tragedies and killer, you know, and, it's, they're, they're, and the great novels are fantastic ways of showing you how to suffer. And they're beautiful, and we cry, and we can relate to it and feel a little bit better. So there's, there's Dharma in everything, if you look at it in a certain way. So this is from the Wall Street Journal, uh, 2003. Technology has us so plugged into data, we have turned off. And this is what it says. A new plague of, in, of inattention is spreading. It's called surfer's voice, a habit of half-heartedly talking to someone on the telephone while simultaneously surfing the web, reading emails, and trading instant messages. Now, this is 2003. The Apple stuff hadn't even appeared yet. So picture of, if this was written now. I don't know if the person could even write it. Okay, okay, okay. On one end of the phone is an annoyed colleague or family member discussing an important topic. On the other end, the party puts on a meager, a meager soundtrack of knowing participation. Okay, uh-huh, right, okay. It is punctuated with surreptitious tapping of a keyboard. <laughs> okay. The brainy people who study these things call this phenomena, this is interesting, absent presence. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Absolutely. For years, researchers have discussed how cell phones have trampled over the once communal public space of sidewalks and restaurants. The idea is that we may be physically on a street corner, but our distracted minds are not. We do little bits of everything and none well. Okay. Um, so a lot of it, and then that goes on to all kinds of other things that I never even heard of, even in the, and it's called distractions from our distractions. <laughs> so you have the, the, whatever the main, if there is a main message, uh, activity, and then you have distractions, and then somehow if you get bored for a second or two, then you need a distraction from your distraction. Uh, it's a bit like, I watch CNN a lot. Uh, that's another form of suffering, but I do it. <laughs> okay. And sometimes it goes a little bit like that. There's the main f picture, and so you're watching what's going on, uh, wherever it is, is taking place. Then uh, up in the right-hand corner is some general telling you something, and you're watching this. There's scroll going on. It has nothing to do with the, the general up there and what's going on here. But in case the general gets a little bit boring or you've heard him say what he's said a hundred times, so then you have the scroll. But just as you're getting interested in the scroll, it gets cut off because it's a commercial. 
So then you come back, and uh, so it is it any wonder? I mean, we need this, uh, we need this old Chinese cook. Uh, we need him desperately, just desperately. Um, also, we, uh, now when we leave here, we also need to learn how to do this with people. We're not going to get to that just yet, because then our minds will be already be home. So we'll do that uh, towards the end. But this applies to, how, to relationship as well. Uh, again, this is my own experience in and around Cambridge. I'm still a cafe person. For me, one of the high pleasures in life is the New York Times, cup of tea, it used to be a cup of coffee, and a whole grain uh, muffin. You know, it used to be a bagel. But anyway, <laughs> refined flour and all that stuff. Um, and I'm, uh, when you look around, some of these, it's full of students, and one old timer, me, uh, and the students have Typically, they're plugged in. And there are two main expressions. One is very serious. And they're writing their thesis or term paper and, or doing some business transaction. But something very heavy is going down there. <laughs> and then the other one is, Okay, <laughs> okay. Now, I went to the University of Chicago. We spent half our life in, ca in cafes. We did the same thing, but we did it with people. <laughs> So we're in big trouble. We're in big trouble. And if some of you are having a hard time, I don't know, my mind can't stay with the breath. That's the least of our problems. <laughs> OK. So what Dogen is pointing out is in some of the examples to refresh your memory, uh, to look at the images are strong, to view pots and pans and the ingredients. Uh, take as good care of them as you would of your eyes. It's a strong image. Uh, then, uh, I didn't mention this yet, then he'll talk about um, caring for the ingredients if you're cooking uh, with the same care and affection that parents have for an only child, warmth and love and real caring. Um, they're trying to convey an attitude of connecting with the activity so that it's just washing the vegetables, it's just cooking. It's just washing the pots, means, meaning that you give yourself over to it. It's not just a kind of cold, concentrated, fixated gaze. It's that you, uh, you bring all your senses, your whole being, into the activity. And it isn't something that you do with great, act, with great strain, with your veins popping out, uh, maybe to begin with, because you're trying to do it. But here's where this is left out in the, in the, uh, in the teaching by Dogen. I have a hunch they covered it in the monastery, but that would be more face-to-face. -face. That is, there are all these ideals, how to, how to uh, uh, relate to, to cooking, to food, uh, and so forth. Uh, but what if you don't? You, you, come, you have a job as a cook, and you don't have any love for the pots and the pans. You don't see them as valuable as your eyes, or whatever it is, any of the jobs that you all have here. Uh, or uh, it was, I had a good time with all of you in the, two group, in the groups we had yesterday and today. Of course, many of you were very, very candid, and I appreciated that, about your relationship to your job, uh, saying striking things. One person bullied their way out of the job and got a job they liked. And uh, I didn't find out which staff member uh, disobeyed orders because we would have had them uh, de demoted. <laughs> Not really. Um, so the point is, we're human beings, and we start where we are. And so here's, 
one of the key uh, aspects of Vipassana, and I think it's a beautiful one, is you always start where you are. Uh, so, but then there are all these ideals paraded in front of us. Uh, and they're useful. They give us a sense of the possibilities that we humans can attain. They're kind of directionals, guidelines. Um, so you, let's say you approach your vegetables or whatever it is, and you see that you, you hate doing it, or there's tremendous resi uh, resistance, or you're bored, to, you're bored and you just want to finish and get it over with so you can do something you like to do. That would not be interfering with this. That would be with practice. That is the practice. So the daily life includes what the Chinese call the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows. It isn't that everything is always beautiful, because it isn't. And it isn't that everything is always grotesque, because it isn't. 10,000 joys, 10,000 sorrows. They also had a very strong inner interpretation of one of the precepts. You shouldn't kill. Well, usually when we talk about it, it's literally. Don't kill a person, of course. Don't kill insects and so forth. But there's an inner meaning, which is uh, when you are fully, completely involved in the moment, or is what this old cook is telling Dogen, you're giving life to life. That is, suddenly the quality of life is upgraded. That's why we do it. You can feel it in yourself. And the activity is improved, the quality of the food. And if it's in a community, if all of us are, uh, as a community, are being mindful and attempting to learn and, and to grow together, then we all help each other. We benefit from one another's uh, sincere activity. Okay. Um, Let's see, where, uh, so the, the Chinese said if, you, if, you, um, if you're wholehearted in what you do, they call that giving life to life. If you're divided, meaning while you're doing the pots, you're, you're in Toledo, Ohio, you know, wherever you want to be, and the pots might be spotless. You get it done. You know, you've done pots many times, and, but you're hardly there. They would call that killing life. And so that's... And that's the inner meaning of it. You don't go to jail for it. It just means you kill the quality of life in that moment. But don't take that as a should. See if the, you know, consciousness or mindfulness or a way of living that puts such a premium on paying attention and learning from what you see and hear, both internally and externally, we keep trumpeting how valuable it is. But unless you see it for yourself, you're just behaving because of outer pressure and then inner pressure because you want to do something that you think will be good for you. Maybe we have to start that way, probably. But it starts, to, the whole quality of the practice changes when you, for yourself, in your own experience, first-hand experience, not borrowed from the Buddha, uh, begin to see that it's a better way to live. For example, personally, if I found out that the Buddha never existed, it was all a bunch of baloney, and the sutras were made up in a think tank in Palo Alto, California, <laughs> Uh, and they were, they were written just, pre, you know, they treated it so it seems like ancient parchment. Or, you know, I still keep doing what I'm doing. Why? Because am I a fanatic? Well, what would be a better way to live? To, to live a life of unawareness and to refuse to learn anything? We already are doing that. Okay, if that's working so well, would we all be here? I don't think so. So we assume that if you're here, you care about the quality of your life. And w there's so many different ways to talk about mindfulness, and one way is this, to give life to life through uh, uh, respecting whatever 
however life expresses itself in a given moment. It could be tying your shoelaces. It's not that there's something so holy about tying your shoelaces. It's that the way you do it shows your respect for your own life or not. If you're on automatic pilot and just doing a sleep, when we all do so much of that. It's not to criticize any of us. We're all fallible. I have the same flaws that you may. Now, I'm not, I don't even like to call them flaws. This is where we start. A Buddha is an awakened person. The, the Buddha said, all I am is awake. I'm not a god. I'm not an avatar. I'm just awake. Okay, so what we're learning is how to wake up. A moment of mindfulness is sometimes spoken of as a moment of Buddha. It isn't the same as, let's say, the depth and the continuity and the naturalness of, let's say, a Buddha, but it's connected to it, just like someone beginning to learn to play the violin is in some way connected to masters of that instrument or whatever instrument. So um, I hope that, if not here, at some point, I think many of you already know this, have seen that meditation awareness, uh, being interested in your life as you live it out, being willing to learn from life as you live it out, that it has some value for you. Uh, and if so, then, then the energy is very different. Because um, when you see something and learn something for yourself, not from a book and not from a teacher, you learn it for yourself, even if it's a very small thing, how you relate to food or something, it, doesn't it give you energy? When, when I learn even tiny things, uh, it's inspiring. It just peps me up, perks me up. So uh, if we take that, you know, we're talking about the cook. Um, and the reason I, that I mentioned Pei Chang and this is because that was a change of the way things were done, let's say, in India. But now uh, we're not teaching, we're, we're not uh, rebelling and trying to go somewhere else so much of this is in the original teachings of the Buddha, but later, as the teaching moved throughout Asia, each culture added its own brilliance to it and refined it and made, uh, put things to it and sometimes changed it so much that it was different than what the Buddha said. And scholars earn a living arguing about this. God bless them. Okay. Uh, but also, um, for example, the Buddha makes a simple statement many times throughout the suttas. He says, be mindful while sitting, standing, walking, and lying down. It's very easy to pass over that. It's just a boring, uh, who cares, you know, sitting, standing, walking, lying down. Okay, what, say something interesting. What he's saying is be mindful throughout life because life is lived out in at one of these postures or moving from one to another. So all that this is is an extension to that, enriching it. And... In the, these are monks, remember, in this monastery. And so there's, the talk, there's no talk about sexual relationships or work in terms of uh, working in a, a business or going to the university or any of that stuff, because this is about them and their, their way of life. And, and if you read some of the rest of the, a lot of the book that uh, uh, Dogen did something for the whole monastery, it, he covers every aspect of monastic life. Okay, so now uh, it's come here to us. And uh, we have to take it a bit further. The teaching uh, is available. That is, the change was made in China because of different conditions. Okay, here, there seems to be tremendous energy among lay people. Look, I've practiced in, in Asian countries, and for the most part, there are always exceptions. Uh, the role of lay people is simply to support the monks 
Secondarily, sometimes the nuns, but even not so much. You, as some of you know, that there's an attempt to change that, and I think that's a good, a good direction. Um, so that people, and there are all kinds of teachings which say if you take care of the monks and you get a good birth, and you know, it's all worked out. It's cultural. Whether it's true or not, I haven't a clue. I don't know. But that system has been going on for quite a while. But now it comes here. So we're lay people. And even there, there have always been um, uh, lay people who caught fire with meditation. And my experience has been in Korea, Japan, and, and mainly Thailand. If a lay person genuinely started to practice, that person was not neglected by the monks. In Korea, um, there was one attorney, a famous attorney in downtown Seoul, married with three children, and apparently was, a, a, was considered a Zen master. And when he came to the monastery, the monks would bow to him, and he would bow to them. Uh, so uh, there's, some, there's some understanding. But for the most part, the system, uh, it's a different role for lay people. Now, however this came about, and there are many ways to explain it. We have more leisure and education and so forth. There's a lot of energy among lay people who really want to learn this stuff. And we don't want to just, uh, sure, let's help monks and nuns. But we, we, want, to do, we want to get free, too. Uh, and we want to, look, you're here. It's a hot day. There are plenty of other places to be. So uh, we need a practice that honors our situation, which includes work, family. Uh, if you're in a relationship, probably you want to get out of it. If you're out of a relationship. <laughs> If you're out of a relationship, you want to get into it, you think you're missing something. Uh, you know, the, the, the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows. Whatever it is, our life is just this way. Everything that's happening, it's really, this is what it, it's happening. There has, there's an economic downturn. There's an ecological. This is really our world. This is the world we live in. Okay, so now we get into an interesting point, I think. Because in a certain way, let's say, so much emphasis on the cook makes that very special. And then I used examples of tea ceremony and flower arrangement and archery uh, and, and martial arts and so forth. These are taking different aspects of life and trying to use them in a new way so that while you're, let's say, uh, not only cooking, but while you're arranging flowers, you're also uh, doing it in such a way as it's, so it's a meditative activity, you're arranging your life. It's not just about being a good gardener, which is fine, but it's about using that activity to do something. If you're an artist, you use art that way. You can. Um, if you're, uh, and tea, yeah, I, I even, Okay, here's uh, Rikyu is known as, in a sense, the father of, it's often called tea ceremony, but many people who really practice it don't think of it as a ceremony. They think of it as the way of tea, cha do, uh, and as, as a Dharma practice. And, and tea in Asia, is v in, certainly in China and Japan and Korea, Vietnam, very much uh, originated through the Buddhist monks. And, and here's what Rikyu, someone asked Rikyu, how do you expect to excel in the way of tea? And Rikyu says, know that the way of tea is at its roots just to heat water, prepare tea, and drink it. Doesn't sound very special. You know, we go to a restaurant, can I have some tea? Sure, you drink it. Oh, I'm spiritual. <laughs> uh, uh, 
The word just is in there. It's that same word. So just cooking, just sitting, just drink tea, just pour the tea, etc. Now, uh, I had a little bit of training, I think I mentioned this, in the Japanese style. And whew, <laughs> that wasn't for the heat. It was for, the, you know, it's not, uh, it's not, it's not for me. Uh, it's endless details and rituals and ceremonies. And for the most part, it has become ritualistic. I don't think they're doing Dharma practice. It's just, it's, there's aesthetics, it's beautiful, and it's a nice way for people to get together. But the authentic tea, uh, tea people, there are all these endless ways that are regulated, ritualized. But the challenge is, even though you're doing the same things over and over again, especially tea masters would be, is to stay awake in the midst of activities that you repeat over and over and over and over, like flossing. You know, so that we have, aren't there certain things like, well, I'm not attached. Uh, my mother made me floss, and now I'm, I study Vipassana. I'm not attached to flossing. Fine. Your dentist will be very happy to hear that. Uh, it's not the matter, the fact that you may do things in a repetitive way. It's the quality of mind you bring to it. Because in life, there are many things that we have to do again and again and again. We wash ourselves, we get dirty. We wash ourselves, we get dirty. We shave, we have to shave. We shave. Okay. And typically, we go numb, you know, uh, and we just, and then the cell phones come, fortunately. Okay, saving us from our own numbness. Okay, um, so, so at its best, that it can be a practice. Now, tea in China is much more informal. Now, I've, for me, it's just, I don't know what to call it, American tea, Brooklyn tea, a lot of what I do, it's alone, uh, sometimes with a friend. When I'm alone, I do, uh, I, I, I've learned to really enjoy the entire, it's, I don't do it in a ritualized way, but the kinds of, of tea, how to brew the tea, et cetera, et cetera. And to do it and sit out, and let's say, in nature when I can, and just carefully drink a tea and drink the tea and nothing else, or with friends. And what I'm trying to do is to maintain, just do our, this practice, but only at every step along the way of, of making and drinking a cup of tea. So that's the essence of it, and that's what Ricky was getting at. He's saying it's just. So otherwise, it's just taking some leaves, throwing them in water, steeping them, mm, tastes pretty good, drinking it. Now, if you read books on tea, and there are more and more of them, as you know, probably, green tea especially, either they're very much on health, which is good, or they're very much on the utensils, porcelain, you know, a teapot for $250 from Ming, China, probably manufactured in Brooklyn, but I don't know, anyway. <laughs> um, and there isn't an emphasis on tea as a way, except in some cases, of course, there are people who know this, and I mean in the West. So uh, really, whatever it is, uh, let's generalize it now, because you see, what, this is what I've seen in life. The example I gave yesterday of the archery, where this, um, his name was um, Kobenchino Sensei. Anyone of you know of him? You've heard of him? He died a tragic death. Uh, his child was drowning. He went in to save, and they both drowned a couple of years ago. At any rate, I spent some time with him, lovely man from Japan. And he was also a master of, of, uh, of the bow, long bow, big bow. I told you what happened. It's just a huge buildup, a special clothing, target, 
and all of us just waiting, and then he just shot it up in the air. What he's trying to say is what we've been trying to say. The target's everywhere. Uh, sure, you can narrow it down and make it, if you hit that target, you're really good. But so, uh, someone who's physically expert can do that. Maybe a, a, a warrior who's very, very good. Can, that doesn't mean it's Dharma practice. So that what you do isn't as, is, is not so much it as how you do it. Now, there are limits. For example, if you want to crack a safe, if you're a robber, and you have excellent samadhi, you know, and I said, wow, that's wonderful. It's not Dharma practice. The Buddha anticipated if you think if you're thinking of it. He called it <laughs> he called it Micha Samadhi, wrong samadhi. So the this tea samadhi, flower samadhi, in other words, a, a, a steadiness of mind uh, that um, uh, it has some flow to it that's relaxed and alert, and as a result. It's a, a totally different experience, and it takes you deeper into yourself. I think in the I have about seven minutes. Okay. There's much more to be said, and it'll get said, uh, and especially some about how this might apply to when you go home. Although, if you can hear it, in in principle, it's it's the same thing only we bring it into a more complex world, relationship, work, family, and so forth, school. Um, how does so-called choiceless awareness, what, is there a connection between the two? And I would say there is. That's why we've been teaching it in a certain way. Very often when you are given breath awareness instructions, the emphasis is on concentration, a valuable skill. And we are developing concentration. But if you notice, we spend a lot of time also uh, giving an emphasis to allowing the breath to unfold naturally and putting the uh, focus of attention on attention so that um, can the mind stay clear and awake as the qualities of breath keep changing. So when it's attractive, it's easy to be with the breath or easier. When it's uh, struggling, when the eg entering and exiting of the, the respiratory process is uh, pinched off, or perhaps you have uh, asthma or some other uh, problem with respiration, the breath is at times not enjoyable at all. Can the awareness, and that's in this sense, the breath is teaching the awareness. And so it's good that it changes its quality all the time because that's how it's training the mind. It's training the mind to remain steady, unwavering, in the face of the varying conditions. So, and then in uh, free attention, open awareness, choiceless awareness, however you want to put it, uh, choiceless awareness uh, is, is a deep subject in itself. I'll go into a little bit more of that maybe tomorrow morning. But two main meanings of choiceless are, are one, no agenda, that is, you just are with your life as it is, from situation to situation. And the other is you're not for or against what you're aware of. You've heard this. It's just a different language for not grasping, not pushing away, not interpreting, not analyzing, not explaining, not translating. Uh, in short, just seeing. It's that word just again, J-U-S-T. Uh, it's just seeing, only with no agenda. Now, some of you are using the breath as a companion. Fine because that can be very, very helpful. Very often what happens, not for everyone, 
um, is at a certain point you realize that finally all the methods and techniques, if it's a wisdom path, are designed to equip our ability to see clearly. Because it's the clear and accurate seeing, free of all the conditioning. If you've come from this ethnic group, that religion, uh, you've been treated this way by your parents, by school, you see the world a certain way and you really think you're seeing the world as it actually is, where really you're seeing it through yesterday's eyes. You're seeing it through your personal joys and sorrows, through your um, ideologies and dogmas and preferences and aversions and so forth. And we're learning how to see, is it possible to develop a quality of seeing that's free of that? Uh, there's a, an old Indian, India, uh, teaching which I've always found amusing and also very helpful. It says, when a pickpocket sees a saint, all that he sees are pockets. <laughs> I think it's funny anyway. So we do that with, with everything, race and, you, you know, it's endless. Okay. Um, so what we're getting, we started rather modestly. If you, as we're learning how to be with the different qualities of breathing, now we've upped the ante a bit. When you're sitting, it's an invitation for consciousness to empty itself of its content. If you're just sitting with no agenda, that's what's going to happen. It's saying, okay, whatever's down there, come on up. Everyone's welcome. It's a big party. Come on out. And you're just sitting there. Now you find that you don't want to, you don't welcome all the guests, the visitors. You don't want them. And you see fears and apprehension and resistances and so forth. Fine, that's where we start. And the practice is being aware of where we are over and over and over again. So everything's welcome. Hey, love, you tell me. Any condition of the body, any sound, and so forth. Um, so uh, the breath is a modest movement towards that. Uh, we're learning uh, in it, the, the teachings of, for the cook are that in that situation is valuable. And then if you generalize, what we're saying is all the various situations that make up life, can we leave one? When we finish with that, can that, we, we're fully into that and then we empty, it vanishes so that we're fully present with what's next. And whatever his situation is, whatever is called for, whatever correct action is, fine. When you're driving, what quality of attention is needed? Hopefully to the car and the road. Okay? And it's not a fixed gaze because you, sometimes you're more with the wheel, sometimes you're more with the, uh, uh, the brake, sometimes you're more with the, different, the, the uh, dashboard, all kinds of things. And you're watching signs and turns and so forth. Now, of course, we have the help of that lovely lady you know, who tells you, take a right on Elm Street. You have three blocks to go and you will be there. You missed it. <laughs> and she has such a nice voice. I was moved to tears. You ever heard her? She's probably a computer. Anyway. Um, so the quality of awareness also is pliable, flexible. It's artful. Um, in the few minutes left, um, See, what can I accomplish here? What? You just want to get out of walking meditation. Oh, you have a yogi job? <laughs> Bad. Yeah, okay. 
Um, let's deal with the heat. Uh, there's a teaching, uh, again from ancient China, um, which is, is <clears throat> it's, uh, used a lot there, and it's a koan, which is a challenge to the, um, the student. From the, to, Typically, a teacher gives it to you. It, it was originally happened. It was fresh. And then it gets recorded, and it's passed on from generation to generation. And that is, uh, if you practice in many of the monasteries in Asia, at least the, in Korea, Japan, and so forth, China, I haven't been in China, uh, Vietnam, um, they don't have air conditioning in the monasteries or central heating. They don't. From what I gather, still not. You know, they, they're not interested. Okay. So when it's hot, it's very hot there. And then when it's cold, it's cold. Uh, in Korea, we did a three-month retreat in the middle of the winter. And they do something, there's some heat under the floor, and the, the monks all fight who can get where the warmest place is. And you have to, every time you want to use hot water, you have to make a fire and heat it up. Okay, but that's the situation. Okay, so this, this um, yogi comes to the teacher and says, how do you practice when it's very hot and when it's very cold? And the teacher says, kill hot, kill cold. Well, that doesn't sound very Buddhist. Kill hot, kill cold. That's, I'm paraphrasing certain things. It got, over the centuries, many different ways of putting it. Um, what the teacher is, is, uh, is trying to say is, is that kill the concept hot, the concept cold. Uh, when the mind makes up, oh, how hot it is, in addition to the objective temperature, that there is, no one's denying the discomfort. And some people, and a few people here, are extremely uncomfortable to the point of where we're concerned about you. Make sure you get adequate water and so forth, electrolytes. Um, but all of us probably are uncomfortable. Now, if you start to look at the mind, uh, the mind that makes hot can turn discomfort into torment. And, it and, if you, and uh, insight is discernment. If you can begin to see how hot is just hot, not, so what we're killing is the concept hot. Don't make hot, don't make cold. Another way in which it's phrased is, in the summer, the Buddha sweats. In the winter, the Buddha shivers. So even the Buddha is a human being, and when it's hot, you sweat. And when it's cold, you shiver, period. So that's, you're just doing that. So that requires, again, a clear attention. Now, I was given this koan by a Korean Zen master that I worked with for five years. And I came in again and again. It can be most humiliating. They, they, they don't have this new age, be nice to the yogis. You know, just sort of, you come in, if you give the wrong answer, they just ring a bell out, you know. <laughs> and that's it, out, you know. We can't get away with that. It would be wonderful. You don't, they don't have to give you a whole, they don't have to give you a long explanation. Just ring the bell, you know. So it went over and over and nothing I do about this, this particular koan. Finally, one day I came in with a thermometer, and I read it. It was a very hot day in Cambridge. And I, I read it, and it said 98.6, something like that. And I read it, and I took out a handkerchief, and I wiped my brow, I bowed, and I walked out. Very good. <laughs> okay. Um, I give this quote out 
every retreat I lead, and I'm going to continue to do it for a while unless I find someone, something better, and I haven't. And the last retreat, uh, or two retreats ago, I don't remember, I gave it out, and someone complained and said, you give the same, uh, you, you know, over and over again. Why don't you give so, 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 something new? So I said, it's true. I do give the same handout over and over and over again. You're absolutely right. Have you done it yet? You know, so here's what it says. And I'll, you can have a copy if you don't want it. You don't have to take it, those of you who have had enough of this. Um, it's by, a, a, I think, a, a very great Japanese artist called Hokusai. And here's what he has to say. From the age of six, I had a mania for drawing the form of things. By the time I was 50, I had published an infinity of designs, but all I have produced before the age of 70 is not worth taking into account. At 73, I've learned a little bit about the real structure of nature, of animals, plants, trees, birds, fishes, and insects. In consequence, when I'm 80, I shall have made still more progress. At 90, I shall penetrate the mystery of things. That's what we're, whether you know it or not, the value of the present moment is that is you go deeper and deeper and deeper into it. Okay, we'll leave it at that. Uh, penetrate the mystery of things. At 100, I shall certainly have reached a marvelous stage. And when I'm 110, everything I do, be it but a dot or a line, will be alive. I beg those who live long, as long as I to see if I do not keep my word. Written at the age of 75 by me, once called Hokusai, today Guako Rojin, the old man mad about drawing. Okay, what does this have to do with what we're doing here? It's what I think that's been going on, except um, what wisdom is, is refining our life. Wouldn't it be nice if the art form that we picked was the art of living? Because here's the danger of these special tea ceremony, um, flower arrangement, because I've, uh, I've studied it a little bit, and I've also uh, talked to people and seen some of it. Uh, it's designed, in the original sense, to be part of the training that should spread to the rest of your life, so that some of the refinements that you learn in any of these arts uh, is meant to then uh, it's a special situation, but then take the, what you learned, just like what we do here, and then bring it into daily life. But what I've seen is all too often, not always, what happens is it becomes an end in itself. And so that we, we create a new escape that uh, as long as you're in tea ceremony, you create a little harbor of safety where you just feel great, and then you go back out into the do dirty, noisy world where people eat meat and... and uh, and eat gluten and, you know, all that kind of stuff. <laughs> okay. What is gluten anyway? <laughs> Why is it so bad? I, you know. <laughs> okay. Okay. So I would say that another way of, of putting this, the emphasis that we're trying to convey, whether you're doing the yoga or any of the practices here, it's about our life. And uh, if you have a particular art form, by all means. But if you use it as a kind of an, uh, an enclave, in a sense, a very high-class way of, oh, finally, I, here I can be happy in my own self-created world that's safe. Well, that's the value of a retreat like this, that it is safer, that it is structured to protect us and to allow certain things to happen. But then if we 
uh, dip it in bronze, you know, and want to put it on the mantle and wear all the different medals, like uh, people, uh, I don't mean, I'm sorry if I hurt your feelings, people list off how many retreats they've done, like, you know, uh, the Battle of the Bulge, invasion of the Earth, you know, <laughs> uh, Guadalcanal, uh, Iwo Jima. Um, and then what about the other nine months? This was on the three-month course. It was, became very dramatic. So uh, by all means, stay. If there's something special that gives you great pleasure, stay with it, photography, painting, drawing, whatever it is. But see if uh, the art of living, which is what wisdom is, living skillfully so it's beneficial for you and for others, that's why we're doing all this stuff. Wisdom is, has to be learned. It's not You can't just memorize wise books and quote Socrates or the Buddha. You can do that. It's good at parties, but that's about as far as it goes. So it's how to bring it into the quality of our life. So that art form, and that's the most neglected one, obviously, on the planet. Somehow we'd rather master anything but living. And how, how do I know that? By where the energy goes. Fantastic science, technology, business, all kinds of things, arts. But Sane people, free people, uh, people who don't want to commit, uh, kill each other, where are they? So uh, it's a, it, this path is about learning, and I would say it just goes on for the rest of your life. And that's what makes it interesting for me personally. Okay, can we have a, a moment, a few moments of silence? May we all continue to look into ourselves. May we see things exactly as they are. And may such clear, direct seeing free us. Thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.